0: players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Black Lotus, Ancestral Recall, Bazaar of Baghdad, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory.
1: Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, everything Eternal Weekend. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. And you don't want to miss this week's, you get to hear about Brian's terrible, horrible crime against humanity. We actually
2: took a little bit of a tour through the seven deadly sins, and we checked off several of them. Uh, If that's the sort of thing you're interested in, get your sick mind into that. Patreon.
1: You also uh, get to hear Phil's lust voice.
2: <laughs> Phil did make a lust voice, it's true. We needed to check that box. I don't recommend it, but still get in there.
0: I'm Phil Gallagher, aka Thraben U, aka Lust Boy.
2: I am uh Brian Bosch and Roll Koval. I I almost forgot my name when Phil called himself Lust Boy, Jesus.
1: <laughs> and I am Brian Cook of the Epic
2: Storm. Shout out to our new paid members who will enjoy that that walk through phil's lusty voice uh we have dustin h matt m uw232c i hope that is the name your parents gave you brian k eli s christian s combo bisque parker k OK yes 87 and coffee wow coffee subs to us what a what a big celebrity get that is coffee's everywhere uh but yeah that was a lot of new people appreciate the response to last week where we Talked a little shit about a fellow Legacy YouTube podcast. That's the sort of thing that happens in the pre-show. Get in there. Eternal Glory on Patreon.
0: Let's get to the juicy bits now, and not the lust kind. Let's talk about Eternal Weekend. So we're going to cover both Legacy and Vintage today. We're going to kind of start big picture with Legacy and then talk about some decks that may or may not be good choices for Eternal Weekend. All right pop quiz question hotshot what's the best deck in legacy right now Trick sure question there's not one that is also my thought as well a lot of times leading up to large legacy events in recent history there just has been a best deck because some card that needed to be banned in the format was legal ragavan oko underworld breach white plume adventurer But we've tossed out a lot of that trash, and what is left is a very enjoyable, very healthy, fair format. But what that means is there's not just like a, hey, play this deck, idiot, like sign flashing in neon lights as we are walking into Eternal Weekend here.
2: Yeah, agreed. I know there are those in the community who think that Orcish Bowmaster fits the bill of that list of design mistakes you just listed. And I mean, yeah, that card's good and it's kind of shocking. And sometimes it feels like the game is over when it resolves, but it has way more play to it than any of the things we just mentioned. And we're not here to stump for Orcish Bowmasters tonight, but we are here to talk about its impact on what's sure to be a big month of tournaments for our community. And looking at the top of the metagame right now, as it were, uh, Grix's Tempo, is the most represented deck, and that is the deck that lets you play Wasteland, Days, Force of Will, Orcish Bowmaster. Makes sense that those all make a good pile together. But some really interesting stuff is happening where Delver players can't even decide on what type of Delver to play. Uh, check out our Tempo episode from a couple episodes ago where we went into all of the different ways that the Tempo Shell is morphing. They can't even agree to play Delver of Secrets, much less what colors to support it with. And the decks, according to Goldfish, are decks that don't draw cards. we got Selesnya Depths and Lands, which are both historically great against Delver, and they don't play into Orcish Bowmaster in any meaningful way. Just a really cool thing going on there.
1: To circle back to our point about how there isn't a top deck, Grixis Delver is at 10.3% of the format according to MTG Goldfish. If we look back on some previous Eternal Weekends where there was busted Delver shells, I specifically remember at the height of the Dreadhorde era, that build of Delver was at roughly 24-26% to 26% of the format. We're not even half of that anymore. Like Legacy right now is one of the best formats it's been since what some people would consider to be the golden age pre-war of the Spark. I think that the format's incredibly healthy right now. And the fact that we have two ultra fair decks at the top of the format that are both dark depth strategies, I think kind of says that as well. Because we're not in one of those formats where you have to play the best deck or a combo deck to go over or under something like these fair decks can exist in a healthy format and i think that's just great and i'm really looking forward to uh what we have to talk about today
0: okay so i want to zoom in on something that you just said so right now there's a relatively large range of tier one options there's not really an s tier right now but below that there's a ton of viable options And I love that for Legacy right now because it's not like you're playing one of the best decks or you're doing it wrong. Like there's a lot of like B tier decks right now that are absolutely solid choices that like I would be willing to play at an event like Eternal Weekend. So basically what I'm getting at here is the gap between tier one and tier two or like A, A tier and B tier is relatively small right now. It's not like the best decks are just so so much better than everything else. You now you still want to might want to play one of those best decks cuz Eternal Weekend is not an event that is fucking around, but
2: yeah, when I look at the the Goldfish spread here, uh they they always do a great job just showing what 30 40 decks here, uh, even going as deep as Mardu Stoneblade is on their front page. Like these are deep cuts and honestly like Selesnya Depths that's in second position here according to this assessment Uh, cephalid breakfast is at like ninth painters right after breakfast and then uh we've got uh like doomsday is on the whole tier after that every one of those decks is a hundred percent respectable this uh deck aggregation whatever doesn't necessarily split into uh like rug beanstalk versus rug questing druid uh also there's four-color druid decks, there's four-color bean decks, there's, like, there's so many nuances within the shells, plus an enterprising deck builder who explores the Warhammer and Doctor Who stuff that we don't have on MTGO might be able to get the whole field by surprise.
0: So accordingly, make sure your deck is prepared for a wide range of strategies going into this specific tournament. You either need to have a good selection of answers like these four-color bean decks do... Or you need to be going fast enough that if you get paired against something a little weird, you can still steal some wins, even if you're not quite sure entirely what is happening.
1: I do agree with you, Phil. I think that in the initial rounds of Eternal Weekend, you could face anything from Mardu Stoneblade to Hammer Chime to Oops All Spells, Bomberman. But as that event continues or, you know, whatever, when you hit round five or six, I think you will start to hit If assuming that you're doing well, you're going to hit more of those Rug Delvers, Grixis Delver, Lands, Demir Scam. You're going to hit that winner's metagame. Being able to beat the fringe decks is good, but I think you might want to dedicate a couple extra cyborg slots to that winner's metagame. Not that you can't face them in the initial rounds of the event, but if you want to make a deep run, you're going to need to prepare for those decks in the later rounds.
2: Yeah, and this this rewards a well-rounded deck construction. Uh, like if we think back to unhealthy meta games, like Grand Prix Atlanta 2019 that Cyrus Cormagill won with Storm, that was Renin Six Delver era, and Storm is a deck that doesn't really care about the card Renin and Six and has a generally positive matchup versus Rugged Delver at the time. But the decks, the other decks that beat Rug Delver. Or ultra fair decks like Depths, where Storm just gets to Goldfish. Uh, this is not that metagame where you could just choose a lane and exploit it. You will have to be. Uh, this is going to be probably an 11 round tournament. I think that's what it was last year at the USA One. In 11 rounds, plus if you want to win the tournament, you got three more after that. Uh, you'll probably see seven to 10 different decks. It's live to see all those, especially if we count the nuance of like Grixis versus four color tempo. If we count those as different decks, the nuance goes a long way too towards diversifying the field.
1: Uh, I'm an Eternal Weekend novice. I've been to one before this, and I believe the year was 2018. I asked around, and I was told that the more recent Eternal Weekends for North America have split Legacy into two days. Is that accurate?
2: It is accurate on a calendar. It is not accurate in the term of thinking about it as a two-day event. It is still a straight Swiss tournament. It's going to be the 10, 11, 12 rounds, whatever, but they might run nine rounds on day one, and then everybody can come back and play the other two or three rounds day two. It's not like X2 makes day two, like a Grand Prix or Star City event.
1: Okay, I was just curious if all 11 rounds were on Saturday. I was like, ooh, that's gonna be a long
2: day. Uh, No, it it's still a long day, but they did split it up last year.
1: Okay, that was my question. Thank you.
0: So if you have been testing for Eternal Weekend online, like let's say you're playing Legacy leagues specifically in order to do your testing, something to keep in mind is that you are probably going to see a little bit less combo than you would see online in leagues and more fair blue, you know, be that Delver or pseudo Delver decks like Scam or... Maybe, you know, the various four color bean decks, Jeskai Control, whatever. Expect to see a lot of blue in these tournaments. Not all, you know, there'll still be plenty of stuff like Death and Taxes around as it's a great budget option. Lots of people will be playing decks like that. If you are used to seeing like Reanimator, Doomsday, Oops, just all the times, like, temper that expectation a little bit
1: i think you're even downplaying it i mean i've played in tons of paper events in my life combo is always like you could lump all the combo decks together it's less than 10 percent of the field it is never a big portion of the metagame in paper part of the reason that people love them in leagues is that you can play a league in 45 minutes and then queue up another trust me i'm one of those degenerates when it comes to paper, it's always more fair. And like Phil mentioned, the budget constraints, is they're very real. In my experience, like going more recently back to SCG Baltimore, uh, there was a lot of 8-casts there. And I think looking at this event, I'm guessing we're going to see a lot of that Monoblock Prison deck. We're going to see the Patchwork Stompy slash 8-cast deck, d These decks are that are relatively reserve list free or close to it and around a thousand dollars always end up being way more popular than the decks that require 10 plus dual lands
2: yeah and i know that might sound self-serving coming from bryant but i will co-sign that combo is always lower than you think and it was a real discussion a few years ago about like that was a couple years ago i just mentioned grand prix atlanta that cyrus won that was when the Storm Cabal was really doing their thing and Storm was winning a bunch of large tournaments and I still thought it was incorrect to dedicate sideboard slots to Storm because it's a difficult deck to play. The deck does not overlap with a collection that isn't dedicated to building Storm out of. Like if you just played Delver in the past but Storm is suddenly well positioned you gotta buy a bunch of stupid stuff like Lion's Eye Diamonds that uh, in order to even start learning the deck. Once we get there there's there's like five competent storm pilots on the earth and maybe one or two will be in the room and then you have to pair into them they're still as susceptible to just pairing into some eldrazi stompy bullshit that they can't beat and then the two competent players in the room aren't in the room anymore i will respect combo i will respect a lot of things uh if i can get splash damage on storm with something like null rod that's also good against eight cast and uh, playable versus death and taxes i'll go there I'm not playing mind break trap in my sideboard for this event. Just forget about you it. Hear you hear that
1: Phil? That. You hear that? You don't need mind break trap. Leave it at home. Don't bring your Bill mind said that traps. weeks ago.
2: He said that was an MTGO decision.
0: Yeah. Anyway. So all my recent deck lists have had three or four mind break traps, but moving on. Um, so if this is going to be roughly an 11 rounder, I'm a little rusty here. Is that, is that X one is what you need to hit? The Swiss
2: triangle is designed that X one is always the top eight cut record. Uh, it doesn't account for draws in the model, but X1 will make top 8, X1 1 might not. Uh, X1 is the only safe, record. X1 or better, are the safe records to make top 8 in any Swiss Triangle tournament. So yeah, uh, it is. you get as many losses in Eternal Weekend as you do at your local four-round Saturday event. It's, it's the exact same math problem that's laying out the bracket, and you better pick a deck that has staying power, Uh, puncher's chance is not really a thing at tournaments this big. Like if you play a deck, I don't want to offend anyone by mentioning any deck specifically, but there are decks that are really good at taking game one, and then they just got to navigate one sideboard game. Uh, Dredge historically has been an example of this. And the puncher's chance at like a six round SCG event versus the puncher's chance at an 11 or 12 round Eternal Weekend, eventually someone's, you're going to miss a punch, and then you're out of the tournament. You just really got to consider what you're what you're signing up for when you make your deck decision
1: it really reminds me of the heyday of star city games where there used to be a standard or modern event on saturday and then the legacy open on sunday where the legacy opens were often 10 rounds and you had to x1 in order to top eight we're back at that and i remember those events ending at like one in the morning uh people talk about how great they were my body could not handle it at this point in time But I mean, people have fond memories of those, and it'll be interesting playing in another event like that.
2: I know Phil wants to make a point, but before we move on from that, I head judged the Star City Edison event that was won by Alex Hatfield with High Tide, like the week that High Tide broke. I think they had just unbanned Time Spiral. I think that's what changed. And I was not allowed to leave until the tournament was over because I was the head judge. And it was also a snowstorm that night, and I ended up snowed in on the side of the road and the Poconos trying to get home at like two in the morning. That's what we're looking at here with Eternal Weekend.
0: So something to think about. Let's say that you show up with an artifact based deck, you know, your eight casts or something like that. Your tournament might be ended by one person having a meltdown or a serenity in a post sideboard game so that's something to think about in in your deck choice you know you you are going for x1 you take that second loss you're 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 dead for the prizes that really 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 matter so if if you can just be completely shut off by a single card make sure you're okay with that going into the weekend make sure your deck choice is good enough that you think that risk is worth it
2: or plan i think for that's it a- uh, like if you have some patchwork automaton aggro heavy build of thought ca- or Eight cast and then you could put like some welding jars in your sideboard to just blast your six six through the meltdown uh, when it shows up on turn three i don't know if that's the tech but you know make sure you test the matchup where maybe you need all your force of wills and force indications in against something like grixis delver where otherwise you're not super stoked about having forces in but if your tournament ends when you get meltdowned guess what all these grixis decks are going to have meltdown you need a plan if you're going to play a deck like that
1: Going back to the point about Eternal Weekend often having more fair decks, or large events having more fair decks, I think that's even more true in an event like Eternal Weekend compared to something like an SCG. SCGs are true two-day events where you can get that puncher's chance, right? Like Because you have a second loss to give in a lot of situations, where in these events, you have one strike. Strike two means you're out. So I think something like uh, unlike Brian, I'm just going to throw a little bit of shade here. If you wanted to play something like Spanish Inquisition, for example, that's a deck that's probably going to take two strikes, right? Like, especially over the course of an 11 round event. So, like, playing these glass cannon combo decks or Belcher or whatever, they're a lot more risky. And I think that's why you see decks like. Celestia adapts or lands that are ultra consistent at the top of the metagame and they're going to be great choices for this event
2: i have a funny story uh interject real quick when alex burton came back from his first ban he showed up to one of those massive star city events that you were just talking about the ones that ended two in the morning and he had been banned for two years and he was used to like the nine round events that happened before his ban and scg really just took off in the time he was gone he went nine oh in his first event back, (laughs) probably cheating, and then he drew round 10, and then he had to play and lost round 11, and did not make top 8. 9-0, ID, dead. And he was like ranting and raving about that. He's like, how is that even possible? And I was like, this is how tournaments work now. Where have you been for two years? Fuck that guy.
0: We're now going to kind of launch into a discussion of various decks, and kind of how they're positioned moving into the weekend. This is not going to be This is an explanation of what each one of these decks do. If you are looking for that, check out my YouTube channel, Thraben Yu. I released an Ultimate Guide to Legacy video on October 9th that is that introductory level. This is how this deck works. These are the things you need to watch out for. These are the most critical cards. That sort of stuff is out there if you're looking for it. What we all have pulled up right now in front of us is the legacy tier list from the Epicstorm.com.
1: Great website. The best website. You should probably visit there, maybe buy a token pack, all that good stuff.
0: So um, Alex McKinley, aka Vivaris, pushed out a, a tier list that kind of looked at some of the data and lump, lumped things into various categories, briefly giving you the rundown before we kind of talk about them. The S tier was no decks, which is very much on par with what we think. The A tier is 4 color control, Boros initiative, Demir scam, Death's shadow, Grixis delver. The B tier has roughly a dozen decks 8 cast, Black Stompy, Dredge, D&T, Jeskai control, Green Sun decks, Moon Stompy, Lands, Mystic Forge combo, Painter, Reanimator, Celestia Depths, Sneak and Show. C tier is Black Saga Storm cephalid breakfast cradle control doomsday Espervile, the epic storm rhinos and oops all spells and the d tier is ad nauseum tendrils the epic gamble and rug delver now obviously there's more decks in legacy than just those but that should give you kind of a feel and we're going to start up at the top in the a tier
2: also i would just like to jump in real quick and First of all, applaud Alex's honesty at putting The Epic Storm in tear on EpicStorm.com. You know he did his work as best as he could here. I'm also uh, consuming this list for the first time. It's also a couple weeks old at this point from the printing date. Maybe some stuff has shifted a little. Don't assume that this is canon. We just need some sort of framework from which to discuss the legacy format. Like, I think Team Delver has come way up, uh, certainly since... Questing Druid, people really figured out how to work that shell. I think calling that D tier at this point is nuts, but they were still figuring that out two weeks ago. So before the angry comments flow in about the tier list, send those to epicstorm.com
1: I do know that Alex uh, made his list using challenge data. So it's also not full picture. It's what the people and Challenges are playing because that's what the Joe Dyer's team collects because we don't have league data. So it is the data point that we have. So if your favorite deck, which is five color nick fit combo isn't on there it's because there's not challenge data for it
0: let's kind of start by talking about control in legacy there have been a lot of great cards printed in the last couple of years that have given the control decks just awesome options in particular helping them finish the game quickly this isn't old school legacy anymore where you eventually win with your single copy of entreat the angels now like from like turn three and on, you have to be watching out for Uro and fourth lingas Sometimes you have to watch out for the One Ring and Boo. Control decks are good at answering everything, but they don't have to just sit back forever anymore.
2: Agreed. Yeah, you control decks are largely constructed these days to find the window and kill you in it. Uh, they're not really built to dirtle. The green sun decks are extremely popular, and that's because they're so good at being proactive. The Greensun Zenith can find whatever they need in a particular spot. Mi- like Phil said, Minskin Boo to 4th Aerolingus. It's been a juicy year and a half, two years for control printings, plus All the the Modern Horizon sets basically function to slow the game down in a lot of ways outside of like Hogak and stuff. Uh, Most of them are backstops, Force of Negation, Solitude, Fury, Lorien Revealed, the control deck gets to hit its land drops now and reload in the late game. It's been a a bounteous time to be a control player in Legacy.
1: When we were recording our last episode, I put a note in our section while we were talking and it was a thought that i had about the removal suite and legacy it is so crazy right now that you have sorts to plowshares prismatic ending solitude and then Leyline binding you have all these great options to possibly include in your deck solitude being the least popular one but it's still a very powerful card and you only have so many slots for spot removal if you go back and look at decks from like 2018 those were the Era of control decks that our editor Phil Blackman loves, and and when you look at those, it was really around the time that Icefin Quattle came to power. Shortly after that, and control decks have never been the same since. You don't see cards like Predict very often anymore. Instead it's Icefang, Coadle, Uro, all these things that have built in value. And with all this built in value, cards like Terminus became a lot worse because you weren't getting an Elves player putting four Elves on the bottom of their deck anymore. Stuff like that just rarely happens without that value happening as it enters the battlefield. So Terminus was no longer a card advantage spell. It was kind of like a break even. And decks like these dirty control decks just don't exist anymore because of that. Like magic has just changed so much in the last handful of years.
0: So, one of the reasons why I like the four color control decks so much in Legacy right now is because removal is so good against kind of the tier one of the format. Like Boros Initiative, Demir Scam, Death Shadow, Grixis Delver. Like, you're eating good if you are signing up with that pile of Swords of Plowshares and Leyline Bindings and you just have the removal. To answer all of these things while also just having like Lorien revealed, up the beanstalk, Uro, fourth lingas, you know, whatever you need so that one for one in your opponent doesn't just leave you dead.
2: Yeah, it's something that I want to point out is that of that list, source of plowshares, prismatic ending, leyline, binding, solitude, three of those trigger up the beanstalk. Uh, I've been eating well lately in the mid game, just putting more X than I need into my prismatic endings. Uh, right before he jumped on this call, I was recording and I exiled an endurance where X equals four. That's a five drop now. And I drew three cards off my three beanstalks that were in play. That sort of shit is crazy. When the one for one game becomes a cantrip game or a divination game or an associate recall game. And, and I'm not even sure that beanstalk is the best way to build a deck because beanstalk and one ring don't really work together. You could also just build control to focus around resolving a one ring and pulling ahead that way. Uh, beanstalk pulls you towards a murktide as a finisher kind of thing where murktide chews up your graveyard where uro becomes worse so like one ring uro is kind of a a package and then murktide beanstalk is a package and there's just a lot of layers to how to build this we actually have so many cards that we have to decide which ones we want to play when Bryant was talking about these old 2018 decks i pulled up uh, a list from may 6 2018 a young character named Brian Koval finished first place in a Star City tournament with Blue White Miracles. And this deck has one Unexpectedly Absent, one Council's Judgment in the main deck on top of the Four Swords of Plowshares. And I remember being deep in the lab trying to figure out what my split should be. Like, oh, do I play the Path to Exile? Do I do this? Like, it was really tough to come by efficient white removal. And now I'm playing decks where I'm not even playing the full suite of white removal spells i could play because there's just too many
0: next deck on our list here is the boros initiative deck list uh which hasn't really changed a lot other than fourth air being slotted into the deck as an additional fireball slash card advantage like the shell is mostly unchanged from when white plume adventurer or, well from shortly after white plume adventurer got banned you know there's not a lot of new tech there other than some people testing out some things like Boromir from time to time,
1: it did put up very good results in the Legacy Showcase last weekend. I believe at a top four and a ninth place finish, so pretty strong deck choice for Eternal Weekend.
2: Agreed, and this one is again exists in multiple flavors. Uh, I think, and based on the the data that is mined here for this list, Boros seems to be the best performing one. But Mono White Initiative still plays. There's still Red Green. I've even seen Naya. Uh, we can argue over. What the best build is, which is not really the point of this, but the initiative and in general stompy light prison elements and get you dead aggro style decks are going to be part of this tournament. And you need a plan for them.
0: Our next three decks, in my mind, kind of occupy the same niche. Uh Demir Scam, Death Shadow, and Grixis Delver are all slightly different flavors in that uh tempo pie, so to speak. And you're going to see a lot of it. And if you are trying to figure out which one to play for the weekend, uh, do you all have any any advice or thoughts?
1: I have a tip for people attending, or attending events. So I play this game with myself where I look at my opponent and I think to myself, like, what do they play? And very often people that play Tempo are wiry, thin tallish people with button-up shirts and wire glasses because they're low-risk semi-intelligent people and i feel like you can just pick a duller player out of a room wire glasses then like that's totally them so if you sit across somebody like that they're playing ponders and you can thank me later
0: Anyway, so Bryant has also sent this message to everyone in the Storm Discord, telling them how to dress for Eternal Weekend for that extra level juke.
2: Yep, if they look exactly like Bryant just described, but they're wearing a Mets hat, they're on the Epic Storm.
1: Exactly. That's, that's the trick. I wasn't going to share that, but here we are.
2: Oh, unless it's Paul. Paul's going to be wearing Mets gear and we uh, will not be on the Epic Storm. All right, never mind. Uh, it turns out all of this is pseudoscience and your mileage may vary.
1: Big beard, heavy stock guy, definitely playing sneak and show. Or Chalice of the Void, one of the two.
2: All right, uh, you are going to get us all canceled if you continue (laughs) (laughs) slotting players into their deck choice by how they look. I guess in the old Black Belcher days, you actually had to get your your edge wherever you could because you were on that 40% to have Force of Will life. Just jam it.
1: It works, I'm telling you. Some percentage of the time. I don't have the math, but some percent.
2: Yeah, I don't have a full grid uh, set up the way Bryant does but I have certainly if you read my old tournament reports or my old Twitter threads I've certainly said things like opponent had Delver vibes they were on Delver it's a thing you you could get a, a, a smell for it were we talking about the legacy metagame or something
0: yes so I was kind of positing like Demir Scam Death Shadow Grixis Delver all kind of occupy similar niches is there one of these that you would recommend to someone going into Eternal Weekend or do you just feel you know it's kind of a crapshoot roll the dice they are all strong decks.
2: To me, my difference between these is that Grixis Delver is just the one that has the cards that stand the tallest on their own in it. Scam is designed to move some pieces around, evoke a grief, reanimate it, troll, reanimate it. A lot of their cards need multiple pieces to get going. And with good mulligans, good cantrip use, uh, pick your spots, you can create those situations. Obviously, the deck's good. If you don't have time to get 100 reps on Magic Online with your deck. I think Grixis Delver will serve you much better than scam. I think scam is actually the trickiest of these uh, to to be proficient with because like when is it worth two cards in your hand to grief one card out of theirs? When when can you solve for that? What matchups is that worth doing? How long can you wait for a reanimate? When do you cycle the Troll of Kazudum on four mana versus wait until you just naturally draw your next two lands to cast it? All of these are, are tricky spots that are not necessarily intuitive where Grixis Delver, it's very clear that you're supposed to Wasteland Days and kill your opponent. Death Shadow probably has the most transferable skills from modern into it. If you're coming from the modern card pool, there's nothing quite like Days. It's actually the exact opposite. Uh, in Legacy, we stick a threat, then we protect it. In Modern, you get your opponent hellbent, then you stick a threat. And Death Shadow is closer to that playstyle. Uh, and Death Shadow also is a deck that mostly stands tall on its own in card quality versus Scam that's trying to get something together.
1: I think there's a hidden level to Demir Scam as well, which is in paper, I would expect Rakdos Reanimator to be incredibly popular. And having your own reanimates is going to be very good in those initial to mid-level rounds of the event. I don't think Reanimator is a deck I would recommend to anyone for this event, for what it's worth. Uh, the Reanimator Discord going to be very upset here, but the overall win rate of that deck has been terrible in challenges and i think that you will see a lot of reanimator between rounds 1 and 6 and then it's going to fall off of the winners meta game so if you're someone looking to climb all the way to the top you're going to get a lot of equity being the demir shadow deck in those rounds and then it's going to be tougher in rounds 7 to 11 as the demir scam deck
2: i found just anecdotally here and take what you want out of this listener that despite seeming like a great choice for a budget player or someone who's only playing Legacy for the weekend. It's a great puncher deck. It's very clear what you need to do. All your decisions are distilled to one or two turns. There's no blue duels, I guess, unless you're splashing show and tell. Despite all these factors, I still basically never see Reanimator in paper. Like, I can't even... Literally can't remember the last time I played against it or saw it within eyeshot of me anywhere in paper play, which and that doesn't mean ignore Reanimator. It's one of those decks that's going to get you if you're not ready. But that it's just weirdly absent in my personal experience.
0: So I I don't like usually like have super polarized opinions, but I have one about Reanimator. If you are intending on playing Reanimator in Eternal Weekend and you do not have a detailed sideboard guide written out yet, don't. Fucking play that deck. Put it down, play something else. Sideboarding with that deck is incredibly difficult. You need really nuanced understanding of what your opponent is going to have. You have a lot of options for like show and tell, the man plan with creatures boarding into haymakers like Magus of the Moon. That deck is hard to sideboard with. Like you need to be ready.
2: Agreed. And just the the whole reanimator thing, the, the game is not how do I reanimate? It's how do I trick my opponent into thinking what I'm doing when it's actually not what I'm doing. And like Phil just said, show and tell creatures, graveyards, if you're not a master in manipulating that and knowing what decks is soft to what, just, just forget about it. That deck is not brainless, but it is easy to disrupt if you are not fully invested in it.
0: So final thing I want to say about Grixis Delver here, I like it as a choice over the other two options because you're the deck that can play Meltdown. And I think that is just an absolutely awesome card to have access to. It is such a just gut-punching game-ending card against a lot of matchups right now.
2: Meltdown and Pyroblast, two of the most potent sideboard cards in the format. The red gives you access to those. Hard to argue with either.
0: All right, kind of jumping into our B tier, and we'll start moving a little bit more quickly. If you are thinking about playing 8-cast in this event... One of the biggest things that should be on your mind is Orcish Bowmasters, as that is one of the format-defining cards of the format, and especially this year's legacy. And so while Patchwork Automaton might have seemed embarrassing before, having something with word early on that doesn't get picked off by Bowmasters that can scale up while also just being a card in your deck that does not have the word draw a card written on it can be surprisingly important.
2: I think between Modern Legacy and Vintage combined, I've lost more games to Patchwork Automaton than any card in the past two weeks. People have really figured it out across multiple formats, and it punches, can't tell you me, it doesn't. It it comes in hard. A lot of a cast lists are down to 4 or 5 casts. They're just not even bothering with the top-end thought monitors anymore. A lot of them aren't even bothering with Chalice anymore. They're taking notes from the Red Prison playbook and they're moving away from lock pieces and into just getting you dead a great adjustment to orcish bone masters which kills creatures when you draw cards versus the deck that is built to play creatures and draw cards great adjustment and uh there's a lot of cool tech if you're still thinking about thoughtcast like it's a year ago uh do some work because that's not what the deck looks like anymore
1: a really quick note, because we're trying to go faster here. We, we wrote a love letter to those white removal spells. Patchwork, Automaton, very good versus all of those sweepers are at a low, which makes this card even better.
0: All right, next up is Black Stompy. If you're going to play this deck, you need to be confident in your 75. There are a lot of different looking builds of this deck that play very differently, despite maybe sharing 50 to 60 of the those cards in the same 75 so just be confident with your list think long and hard about how many copies of karn the great creator you want to be running
1: our next deck is dredge i almost feel like this one shouldn't be included uh no disrespect to mufaz van gogh extremely talented player however They've been carrying the archetype on their back. I believe they had three consecutive top eights with their blue dredge list, with Force of Will and Daze and Cyborg Null Rods. This is not the dredge that you're thinking of with the five color lands and Faithless Looting and Lion's Eye Diamond. This is truly a different deck, and if you're just looking to pick up a deck for Eternal Weekend, I don't think you'll have enough time to truly master this deck in time. I would probably stay clear of this deck, but it's a good long-term choice if we're willing to put in the work.
0: I think Death and Taxes kind of falls into a similar position where like if you already have the work in with Death and Taxes, I think it is a very reasonable choice. Lots of people are going to pick it up for the first time for Eternal Weekend and maybe be a little disappointed in their results because the deck is difficult to play. But White Removal is really good right now. When people are out there reanimating trolls, just swords of plowshares as a clean answer is very strong. Uh, the deck is a good choice if you're one of those people who has already been grinding with it. Uh, if you're, you know, you're a couple weeks out from EW and you're picking up death and taxes for the first time, put in the work. Don't be afraid to ask questions. There's a lot of talented pilots out there.
2: Yeah, I, in the interest of moving this along, I'm going to lump Lands and Slesnia Depths in with Death and Taxes because it's all the same points. These are all powerful decks with ostensibly good Delver matchups, and they're all hard to play, at least optimally. If you're going to plan for any of these decks, get your reps because you will not be able to pick up and play any of them.
1: Brian, um, there's a decklist I'm actually a little surprised to see here, and that's Jeskai Control. Why would you possibly play Jeskai Control right now? Over a four color bean or ring deck. Like, I, I, fourth airling is, is so good, but why pure Jeskai and not go for the fourth color? Like, I, I'm a little surprised to see that here.
2: Uh, good question. I have no idea. I wouldn't recommend it. And if you, I mean, Wasteland is a common theme among a lot of the best decks. Uh, Delver, Shadow, Scam, uh, even four color usually has one or two Wastelands in there because they're pretty soft to Caracas and a lot of them play Loam, Death and Taxes, Lands, Slesnia Depths. These are all Wasteland decks. I guess, if you're worried about that. Uh, but you could also just put Life from the Loam in your four-color deck or Sideboards of Flowers and just live pretty. I cannot recommend Pure Jeskai in any capacity in Orcish Bowmaster's metagame.
1: I have a hot take for the two of you. Mystic Forge combo is a deck in this tier. My take is that the Saturday challenges are incredibly soft and a couple very good pilots went on very deep streaks with a deck that was new and people did not have the experience against. I have not heard the words Mystic Forge combo in weeks since people started packing their Null Rods again. And so like, I just don't think it's that good of a deck. And I think it's also super high variance. So if you're looking to win an 11 round event, I don't think you should be anywhere near Mystic Forge combo.
0: I would be worried about my event being ended by Nullrods, Serenities, Meltdowns, and Friends uh, submitting that deck list for an 11-round tournament. Um, I have played against a good amount of Mystic Forge combo in leagues. When you don't have the hate, it's a a little tough. The One Ring can do some very silly things very quickly. I'm not the biggest fan of that. Um, Similarly, Moonstompy is in this tier list. If you have access to both Moonstompy and the Boros Initiative deck... I might shove you in the initiative direction with the caveat, just like be aware that your opponent can thought seize you and reanimate your initiative creatures. That's a thing that needs to be on your radar.
2: Not that you could do anything about it. You're a red white deck, but put it on your radar. <laughs> Become emotionally comfortable with it.
0: Um as, as an aside, I saw I, I I don't remember who published this. There was some red white initiative player who published a sideboard guide recently, and they were like yeah, in the reanimator matchup, I just board out all of literally all of my initiative creatures so my opponent can't take the initiative. I'll kill them with whatever.
2: And I agree with Brian about Forge Combo. I think we talked about the Puncher's Chance deck, and Mystic Forge Combo can 5-0 a league. It can catch a uh, Swiss tournament off guard, being susceptible to any piece of combo hate, like any Null Rod, any Deafening Silence, anything that people might have anyway, plus the Meltdown gets you. I don't like it for a 11-round t- event.
0: What about something like Painter, though? Does Painter get the pass here?
2: Painter has a ton of agency to it, and you can take lines where you just Goblin Welder into Goblin Engineer, and you are never susceptible to wel- Meltdown. The first artifact you put into play in the game could be like the Lethal Painter. If you set up a turn where you tutor Grindstone out of a saga, play Painter, and pop them all at once, uh, you can win without needing to expose yourself to Meltdown. And their artifacts jump in and out of the graveyard like crazy. Uh, this this deck is pretty frustrating to play against as a control deck because you can have a hand with like three swords to plowshares and they just play three Urza Sagas and you can't keep up. Uh, and then you'll keep the hand with Dress Down and they have two goblin engineers and you can't keep up. They can solve for basically anything. And I think painter, skilled painter pilot, can navigate a long event like this
1: i would not be surprised if painter made top eight of eternal weekend i think that deck is likely right underneath a tier like it's high b very low a but it's a great choice in my opinion
0: i think one of the things that painter has going for it is so many pilots only play on magic online and if you haven't played against chaos defiler that card that card fucks like that card gets you out of some really weird spots Like, I was playing in a paper event, I thought I was just fully insulated from every out, and then a Chaos Defiler hit, and my brain went, oh yeah, I needed to be playing around that this whole time, didn't I?
2: Yeah, that's a really good card that we don't get to play against on MTGO at this point.
1: One of the final decks in the B tier would be Sneak and Show. I've pulled up MTG Goldfish because I wanted a better look at what to discuss here. And one thing I'm noticing is it's a lot of 20th place finishes, 17th place, 28th place, uh, a 5-0, a 4-3. None of these results are top eight finishes for Sneak and Show. It is a deck that has a dedicated following, but ultimately isn't converting a whole lot so keep that in mind there are some interesting things going on with the archetype right now jpa 93 is completely cut gristlebrand in favor of atroxa you don't know how badly that hurts me to say out loud because i hate giving phil credit here right now there's more blue cards which means that you can even play things like misdirection to protect your combo instead of things like days that way you know you can be faster but I don't think I'd recommend Sneak and Show. Uh, I think you're just looking to dodge a whole lot with this deck right now.
0: Generally speaking, we're probably recommending decks within the A and B B tier for Eternal Weekend. Is there anything you all want to say about decks in these lower tiers, or should we move on to Vintage?
2: Uh, I do want to call out Cephalid Breakfast real quick. Uh, I think this deck is still good. I think this deck uh, was misbuilt for a while. I don't think the community knows how to build it, and I'm not saying I have the answers, but I have seen versions that are on multiple Lotus Petal and no backup plan and Pact Negation to just go as fast as possible, and I've seen builds playing Yorion, and they just have literally all of the backup plans in there in the 80-card deck, every flavor they're in. If you have good reps with Breakfast and a good plan for the popular matchups, I think this deck
0: is a sleeper hit. I think one of my favorite things about Cephalid Breakfast is that it has this huge advantage. How do you sideboard against Cephalid Breakfast? I play at minimum 25 matches of Legacy per week. Cephalid Breakfast is not a new deck. And every time I sit down with a new deck versus Cephalid Breakfast, I'm just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Which angles am I supposed to try to cut off? I think it is very hard to sideboard against that deck list. And I think for a lot of... Less experienced pilots or people who switch decks a lot. It's a hard deck to fight.
1: I would agree with that. And I also believe that Doomsday is actually really underrated in this list. Over the weekend, Max Carini saw this tier list and was not happy that Doomsday was in C tier. Because of that, out of spite, Max signed up for the Legacy Challenge and then split first place. Uh, Max will be at Eternal Weekend. So one of the best Doomsday players on the planet will be there. But in general, I think that people have been a little bit down on Doomsday because of Orkish bowmasters. But a competent pilot is going to be able to navigate through Orkish bowmasters just fine. What I believe we're seeing is a lot of the players like me that were pretty good at winning because the deck was so overpowered. They fell off because they couldn't figure out how to beat bowmasters, and now. Really, just like the true experts are the ones left standing. So, we went from like an A deck to what I would say Doomsday is actually a B deck. It's like a strong B tier deck. And I think that deck is really underrated at the moment.
2: Yep. And that one has the same thing that I was talking about about 2019 ad nauseum tendrils, where there's like six competent pilots on the planet and there might be two in the room with you and you might not pair into them or they might knock you out of the tournament. So, I wouldn't go crazy boarding for Doomsday but have a plan for the matchup, know what they're soft to and how to exploit that. And this is not a deck that you could pick up and play, Uh, especially in a paper tournament, like on moto, when you could just let the chess clock run while you figure out your pile, your opponent will call a judge at a journal weekend. And if your opponent is spending 60, 90 seconds, uh, two minutes on their doomsday pile, you call a judge. That person should have done their homework and they should not be in this event with with a deck that they cannot make their pile quickly and resolve their spell quickly. Don't be shy.
0: Be aggressive about it. I I would, at the one minute mark, judge every every time like you need to encourage that person to finish their pile. Your games are often not going to go long versus Doomsday, but it will take you more turns to win than your opponent. Like, don't let them farm that time.
2: And it's not just that either. It's not. I mean, that's part of it. Uh, like, that's one of the things that Saito got banned for, where he was playing a Nauseam Tendrils and just would stall the clock until the game went to turns where he could win and his opponent couldn't. Uh, like, that's something to worry about. But also just the the fairness of it is part of playing in a competitive event that the clock is shared and you need to respect that. And if you don't know how your deck works and you're eating up six, seven minutes at a time resolving the marquee spell of your deck, uh, then you will, should not be in that tournament. Uh, Call a judge, get the slow plays, get them added up, get that person out the door. They don't belong there doing that.
1: I recorded Doomsday last night and there was a point in the league in which I said I couldn't play this deck at Eternal Weekend. I won the round, but I had seven minutes on my clock to my opponent's 20. Like it was just so tough figuring out the proper lines versus Difle, not where I was like, I have the basics down, but once the matchup is tough, I froze. I, I was like, I'm not competent enough with this deck to figure it out. And those are would be the situations where I would get nervous, where your opponent has a hate piece and you have to figure out how to beat the hate piece and the card in their hand. So if you're going to play Doomsday, you need to know those things up front.
2: Yes. And being able to adjust on the fly, the Doomsday composition can usually beat any combination of hate. You just need to predict, accurately predict what hate your opponent could have and make a pile that beats that. Like I've played quite a bit of Doomsday. I've played it to some success at local events and... uh done a lot of homework on it, but even understanding like this deck struggles versus the Sheldok Emrakul plan. And I know that's generally the default, but I also have a feeling that they're out of interaction and I could just try to turbo this. You can't spend time waffling about even that decision. If you waffle about the decision, then make the pile quick. You've still resolved your doomsday slowly and it's unacceptable.
0: All right. Any final legacy thoughts here? Let's talk about some vintage. Okay. I'm going to go slightly out of order here. So something that I want you all to keep in mind, if you're playing in Eternal Weekend and you are playing in both events, you are playing in two large events back to back. Your Vintage event is probably 9 or 10 rounds. Your Legacy event is probably somewhere on the order of 11 rounds. Keep yourself physically healthy, mentally fit for these days. Eat something that resembles a vegetable Really consider how many beers you're having uh, with your buddies after the first day. You know, think about that sort of stuff.
1: We we've done a couple episodes on these now. You could always go back and listen to those as well. Like we've done prep episodes, so go check those out. They're great listens. Uh, we're not going to go in depth here.
2: Right. A lot of people do use Eternal Weekend as a vacation. That is okay if that's your plan. Just understand that the people there to win Eternal Weekend know that you're dead money. The people who are out till like 2 a.m. getting drunk and eating A5 Wagyu steaks with their friends, uh, they will not win the event the next day. It's okay to be on vacation. Just understand that there are two different groups attending this event and just know which one you're in before you start making those late night dinner
0: plans. All right, so vintage metagame. So your big four, according to the MTG Goldfish data, are Oath at about 19%, Blue Tinker decks at about 19%, Paradoxical Outcome decks at about 15%, and Initiative decks at about 14%. One
1: quick note here, the Blue Tinker decks are everything from like the Ragavan-style Tinker decks to Beseech Tinker. Like those are almost two separate decks that, but because they're both Blue Tinker, they get lumped together. It's really like two different decks, and the PO decks are both Jewel Shops and Classic PO. I think... Out of the decks we're seeing here, Oath and Initiative are really only the two like these are the two that have stock lists that aren't just like kind of wilding and out there. Like those two are really one and two. And then I think PO and Blue Tinker are, are like three and four because they're split decks.
2: Yeah, agreed. Uh this has distilled down really small, uh, but there's an in, there's a crazy number of things happening, especially in that blue tinker category. The oath deck, though, is mostly one oath deck, and holy crap is a good uh just if you have been out of touch for Vintage for a little while, this deck popped up I think in like the last three or four weeks. People really solved the shell. Justin Canari won the Buffalo Chicken Dip open with it. It is putting up things on MTGO left and right. I played this deck last week and 5 0 on zero reps. Uh, this deck, I, I do have a lot of reps with Oath in the past. I moved away from the deck because of the, the problem when you draw your monster and then you're just watching someone else play Vintage while you have an Uncastable Grizzlebrand in your hand or whatever. Uh, Atraxa, as a four of, is the only Oath target. It pitches to Force of Will, Negation, and Vigor. Uh, You have four Show and Tells and Flash that can leverage Atraxa from the hand. Uh, This is the most buttery smooth Oath deck I've ever played, and it is really good. Uh, Make sure you understand how that deck works if you're not going to play against it, because also buried within these Blue Tinker and PO categories, is the fact that Orcish Bowmaster and Lavinia are in basically all of these decks. And then the next deck is Initiative, which is a creature deck. And Oath of Druids, if you think Orcish Bowmaster is a clever little thing to just run out on turn two and then your opponent oaths you, you're dead. Uh, You just really have to understand what it means when Oath is 19% of the metagame.
1: I just want to say, I think it's hilarious that these Oath decks are playing Tinker, Bolasus Citadel, which is just wild to me. And they're decked with four Atraxa, four Force of Will, four Lorian Revealed, Show and Tell, Force of Negation, like, Oath, or uh, I'm sorry, Narsa and Okos. Like, this Bolasus Citadel is going to deal you 50 damage. I hope that Atraxa is going to gain you a lot of life.
2: Uh, So, funny story, in the league that I 5-0'd with Oath, I fired off a turn one Tinker for Bolasus Citadel, top card in my deck was Oath of Druids. The next card under it was Forbidden Orchard. and I was just like, yeah, I would have kept a hand that could Oath Orchard on turn one. We just took the Ceno Crown. Probably the worst boluses in it all deck, but still like being able to just shove that thing in a lot of matchups, even if you just draw one or two cards per turn, it it's enough.
1: Before Besiege the Mirror was released, I was heavily looking at Doomsday, which is the fifth deck on Goldfish. But one of the reasons I'm a little bit lower on Doomsday right now is if you look at the Paradoxal Outcome decks and the Blue Tinker decks, something that's happening is main deck dress down is becoming more and more popular. And I think when that happens, because of initiative, like, people want to create windows where they can beat initiative. Doomsday is getting the splash eight. And I, before Besiege, I was 100% on the Doomsday train. I think Doomsday, for the first time in a while in Vintage, has real splash damage. Previously, if you wanted to beat this deck, you had to play things like Archive Trap, and that's no longer the case.
0: If you are coming from Legacy and you play ancient tomb decks, The initiative deck is a really easy deck to pick up. The play patterns are going to make a lot of sense. Like what Brian was just talking about with like Orcish Bowmasters versus blue deck, but like you have to keep Oath in mind as well. I feel like a lot of the initiative lines just kind of intuitively make sense. And, you know, assuming you just have access to power and don't play a lot of vintage, um, initiative might be a a good deck choice.
2: Right. Uh, It is just the legacy deck, but better. Uh, You get a full boat of power. Uh, You're not doing weird stuff like Chrome Mox. Uh, You still have White Plume Adventurer. Another cool thing about initiative is that I tend to compare vintage decks to thoroughbred resources where they're fast, they're strong, but if they roll their ankle, they're going to the glue factory. There's no backup plan. There's no salvaging this thing. It's not going to work at a petting zoo. It's too crazy. It's got to die. Vintage decks, I have been victim of just I keep a hand that's got, like, two lands, Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, uh, a Tinker, a couple of Mox whatever, and my opponent's, like, land Mox Thalia, and I just lose on the spot. Uh, I have multiple dead cards in my hand, I can't deploy my Mox fast enough, even if I flip the Citadel with Tinker, I can't cast spells out of it because of Thalia. Like, these decks roll hard, and you get Thalia, you get Archon of Mimiria. it happens on turn one, basically all the time, uh, that deck is very, very good contextually and vintage as well as just being a supercharged version of the legacy deck
1: i have three points i would make like to make here about initiative one if oath is everywhere and you're the creature deck this deck has main deck solitudes and you get access to source to plowshares in the sideboard this deck might actually be fairly good versus oath due to the initiative plus those things the second point the lists i'm looking at all have four chrome in them for what it's worth just wanted to call that out and the third thing is initiative creates a weird play pattern where often they'll lead on the mox and you're just like this could be anything i'll let it resolve and then they go cavern of souls i'll name human thalia and you're like oh and then next turn cavern of souls i'll name archon archon of ameria and you're just like if only i had forced this mox why am i on this earth but like it's not a normal play pattern subtle things like that matter way more in vintage so you'll Against a real vintage expert, you'll see them tank on like the smallest thing. You're just like, hey, dude, does my mocks resolve? And they're like, shh, I'm thinking. Call the judge on them too. Uh, Those people that have that expertise, you want to put them under pressure. Don't give them all day to think about your mocks.
0: In terms of the most recent challenge data that we have, uh, there was no data collected for the 1029 challenge. Unfortunately, it's a volunteer thing. You get what you get. Luris Saga deck Eight casts, combo jewel shops, agro shops, and oath were the most played lists with jewel shops and Luris saga having the best win rates among those decks.
1: There was a vintage challenge over the weekend. Uh, this one published yesterday where the first through fourth place were all the same 75 for jewel shops. Take it with a grain of salt. Vintage challenges are usually like 30 to 40 people. I wouldn't live and die on this hill, but it's just something to think about.
2: Yeah, there's also a thing that happens in vintage where you do need to be studied up on the recent decks because you will probably see them. I mentioned the vacation crowd and make sure you know which camp you're in. The intersection of people who own power and can afford to travel for three days right before Thanksgiving and and like all the factors that result in who is in the field of a zero proxy vintage tournament this might make some people upset but i genuinely believe this to be the softest tournament i play in of the year Uh, you see a lot of weird decks you see a lot of stuff that's from like 2015 that people just won't let go of you see some suspicious tech suspicious play you play against a lot of people who don't know how calling a judge works and uh it's just kind of a lax community it's the type of folks who dust off their power once a year to come drink with their friends after the event, and they're not there to be serious. That doesn't mean that those are bad people or free wins. If they're taking their time, talking, chatting, uh, and not shuffling their deck when the clock's running, you got to be on them. Miss triggers, take backs, like all this kind of stuff. They're going to ask for it. They're going to want it. <laughs> Don't give it to them if you are serious about winning the event, because I, I do believe this event is pretty easy compared to the the prestige and the, the weight of it. I believe that this event is easier than the average Star City Open by a lot. And that's not necessarily true in Legacy, but I do believe it of Vintage.
1: One thing that happens every year with the Vintage events as well is that the challenge data is roughly the same 30 to 50 people week after week. Like, there's not a whole lot of people coming into Vintage. And then what happens is, all of a sudden... Eternal weekend happens and you now you have 500 people playing vintage, and the expected result is never just the challenge data expanded. What happens is you end up with a lot more classic prison shops, a lot more dredge, and people expect the top of the metagame, but that's never quite how it plays out. Because you also get like Soul Time Midrange, the deck with Death Rate Shaman, Oko, Collector Oof, all those cards ends up being way more popular in paper and for Eternal Weekend because it has transferable skills. So decks that are more fringe players always end up getting larger meta percentages.
0: If you are finding you need more resources for Vintage, please check out Justin Ganari, aka I Am Actually Level 1, kind of the stalwart of Vintage content creation. He has a lot of really good things to say. He has uh, some Patreon write-ups that are really useful. Um, I'm going to drop a couple of uh, his recent quotes from Twitter here into the episode. Quote one, we are very close to a vintage meta where zero Tinker Saga decks have above a 50% win rate. This was unthinkable even earlier this year and has never been the case since the printing of Saga. And a second one that I'm just going to throw out here. Sorry, I have to pull this one up because this one was an image. The age of Luris returns, with controlling Luris Saga decks featuring nine colorless lands taking firm control of both the highest play rate and a sizable win rate. The metagame continues to adapt around it. For instance, these decks are not currently playing Null Rods and can't typically feature artifact or enchantment removal in the current blue-black configuration. This has led to the power artifact combo decks making a resurgence. 5-color turbo vault key, jewel shops, and even my own second place with an aggro 8-cast list all look like good examples of exploiting a low collector oof, low force of vigor format. So if you are interested in more gems like this, more analysis like this that is beyond the scope of what we are doing with this episode, please check out Justin's content. He does great work.
2: Yep, that is uh, where I will be going when I'm ready to dig in. Obviously, I've been playing some leagues where I can, but when I'm actually ready to choose a deck and study it. I know Justin will have multiple leagues recorded with whatever deck I choose because that's his thing and uh, he will be smart about his words that he says about them. So that is how I'm going to do my final prep push for the vintage part of these events after I figure out what deck I want to be on. Okay we ran a little long here. Do you guys have anything else to say? I think we we did a nice brush on the the overall picture here.
0: I hope you all enjoy Eternal Weekend, especially if this is your first time going to one of these events. It's something special to be able to play a big tournament for Legacy, and it's even more special when you can do Vintage as well in the the same weekend. Uh, It is a great time to network and meet some really cool people who are super enthusiastic about both formats, and even if you're not there on vacation, maybe take some time get to know some of the members of the community, because the community is honestly great
2: absolutely and the vibe is unlike anything else uh a couple years ago i needed an Orzov pontiff for my deck i played five color humans in legacy and one of the vendors said oh we didn't bring any new cards that card was released in 2005 uh, that's the vibe at eternal weekend and i do not like the reserve list i wish that it would go away i don't like gatekeeping magic based on the price of stupid shit however a multi-hundred-person zero proxy vintage event is a sight to behold. It is an incredible thing to just walk up and down the rows and see the ancestral recalls and black lotuses flying around. It's 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 an experience like no other. Even if you're not playing it, it just just soak it in a little bit and have fun.